Hi friends, it's Susan Blackwell from The Spark File, your one-stop shop for creativity where our doors are open. And if you smell something delicious, that's because Laura Camion and I have been cooking up something special, something designed to make a big difference in people's creative lives. Enter The Brave Creative, a free five-day guided adventure to rediscover the vitality energy, and possibility in your creative process. Whether you're a writer, a performer, a baker, a candlestick maker, navigating the creative process can be a bear. But never fear, there's power in numbers at the Spark File. So let's link arms and make the trip together. It's May 13th through 17th, 7 p.m. Eastern, less than one hour per day. And if you can't join live, don't worry about it. You can watch the replay. Join us by going to thesparkfile.com to register. And hey, if you're not familiar with The Spark File, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, we work with hundreds of creatives of all different kinds who are ready to take their next big step. We help folks fear less and create more in a community that is so fun and vibrant. And if you have joined us before, know that we are going deep with the Brave Creative. So buckle up, Buttercup. It is going to be an awesome adventure. Go to thesparkfile.com to register, but do it soon because it all starts May 13th. Thesparkfile.com. Register now. The Sparkfile podcast may contain profanity and other adult content. Please use your discretion. When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my spark file. To be something that I want to make or how I want to be, I pump it in my spark file. I jump into my spark file. Let's open up the spark Welcome to the Spark File, where we believe that everyone is creative, but smart, creative people don't go it alone. I'm Laura Camion. And I'm Susan Blackwell, and we are creativity coaches who help people fear less, create more, and bring their creative visions to life. If you're an OG member of the Sparkfile community, welcome back, Sparkler. If you're joining us for the first time because you conducted a search and came across this podcast, what? Welcome, new friend. Welcome, welcome. Know that just by listening to this podcast, you are joining a warm and wonderful clan of creatives. But hold up. You may be asking yourself, what exactly is a Sparkfile? A Sparkfile is a place where you consistently collect all your inspirations and fascinations. If you're like us and you're making stuff all the time or you want to be making stuff all the time, you know that if you're not careful, your campfire of creativity can flicker out. But do not despair. We are collecting kindling in the form of fresh ideas, images, and inspiration that spark creativity and pique curiosity to light a fire under our collective asses to make things like this podcast. Or an unbelievable real-life story about the dark side of creativity. Oh, every episode we're going to reach into our spark files and exchange some sparks. And from time to time, we're going to talk to some folks who spark us too. That means... Friends, we have more sparks than we can possibly use in this lifetime. So please, we invite you. Please, we implore you. If something lights you up, we encourage you to take that thing and make something out of it. 
Without further ado, let's open up the, the Spark, Spark file. file. Laura Hi. Lynn Camion. <gasps> Susan Patricia Blackwell. Oh, have I got a spark for you. Oh, really? Oh, my God. I'm excited. This is an instance where we have a little bit of a time constraint, and okay. I have 15 pounds of spark in a 10-pound bag, <gasps> okay. Okay. and I know we like to chit-chat, and I know we like to warm into we it. We can't today. We can't I don't today. Think, I don't think we can. I think we've got to go okay. straight Let's do it. into the center of this spark. Let's do it. Chit-chat. Love you. Happiness, joy, and now on Love to the Love you listeners. Here we go. Love you listeners. So I'm sure there's so many people that are like, oh, good. Get straight into it, ladies. <laughs> so I'm going to jump in and just say, if you're new around these parts, welcome again. If you've been with us for a while, this may ring a bell. This may sound familiar to you. Laura and I know that there are many ways that you can define creativity, we borrow from the definition by Sir Ken Robinson, which is that creativity is applied imagination. And we add that fights for the powers of good. So our definition of creativity is applied imagination that fights for the powers of good. Now, on this podcast, we frequently focus on creativity in the arts, but we all know creativity lives in all sorts of disciplines, not just the arts. Let's take science, for example. I'd like to share with you some creativity from the world of science. This is the 1999 New York Times obituary of a medical researcher named Dr. Theodore H. Benzinger. Dr. Benzinger worked at the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bethesda from 1947 to 1970. He studied temperature regulation and helped create the related field of biothermodynamics. He held patents on 40 inventions, the most famous being the ear thermometer, which he developed in 1964. All of this is from the New York Times. Wow. Dr. Benzinger developed the ear thermometer while searching for a way to take a person's temperature and get a reading as close as possible to the brain temperature, which regulates the core body temperature and is found in the hypothalamus at the base of the brain. And until Dr. Benzinger's invention of the inner ear thermometer, temperature could only be taken by inserting a thermometer into the mouth or the rectum or under the arm. The New York Times obituary goes on. Born in Stuttgart, Germany, Dr. Benziger came to the United States in 1947 and was naturalized in 1955. After retiring from the Naval Medical Research Institute in 1970 as director of the Bioenergetics Division, he worked for four years at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Dr. Benziger died in his retirement home in Bethesda, Maryland. He was 94. He was survived by his wife, four children, six grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren, which is so sweet that those grandkids can tell everyone that their grandpa had the spark to invent not only the ear thermometer, but helped create an entire field known as biothermodynamics. Wow. So all of this is to say creativity takes many, many, many forms. And we've talked a little bit about inventors like Hedy Lamarr and yeah. people who have these wicked spacks of creativity that come from like, she was looking at a player piano and thinking about an early TV remote control. And she, you know, like just crazy cross-pollination, recombination of ideas. That's right. Here's another impressive piece of creativity from the world of science. 
This comes to us from the brilliant rocket scientist and Floridian, Laura Camion, Floridian <laughs> named Kurt Debus. Starting in 1952, Kurt Debus supervised the development and construction of rocket launch facilities at Cape Canaveral. Beginning in 1961, Debus directed the design development, and construction of NASA's Saturn launch facilities. In 1962, the Florida launch facility at Cape Canaveral was officially designated as NASA's launch operations center, and Debus was officially named its first director. Under his leadership, NASA tested and launched the Saturn family of rockets for the Apollo and Skylab programs. And since 1990, the National Space Association of Florida has presented its annual Kurt Debus Award to recognize significant aerospace achievements in Florida. Wow. I know how to write like a song or, or craft curriculum or like launch a podcast, but launching a rocket it's just beyond. It's just beyond. People like Sir Ken Robinson dedicated their life to try to get people to understand how educating in the field of creativity is really serving all of us in so many ways because it will require creativity and creative problem solving in order to come up with new technologies for humanity to survive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kurt Debus, he sounds great. But there's an even more brilliant rocket scientist uh, at hand, Werner von Braun, who at an early age learned to play both the cello and the piano and could play pieces by Bach and Beethoven from memory. At one time, young Werner wanted to become a composer and pieces of his youthful composition still remain. But that creativity is not what Werner von Braun is best known for. At a young age, in addition to piano, cello, and composition lessons, his mother gave him a telescope and he developed a passion for astronomy. Werner von Braun became the chief architect of the Saturn V super heavy lift launch vehicle that propelled the Apollo spacecraft to the moon. What? For the United States, oh winning that space gosh. race. In 1977, President Gerald Ford awarded him the country's highest science honor, the National Medal of Science in Engineering. He was, however, too ill to attend the White House ceremony. He died in 1977 in Alexandria, Virginia, at the age of 65. What do all of these men have in common, Laura? Well, I don't know, but I had a little tangent to go on. I don't know if I can. You want to? I do. I just want to say just a quick thing. When I hear stuff like this, I think about, you know, we talk about resistance. We talk about fear of creating. Uh -huh. When we are creating in the spaces of the arts, for the most part, no one is actually going to die if we make a mistake in Act 3. <laughs> when you are creating right. on this level, like that, to me, that fear starts to make sense. Okay, if I make a mistake in this calculation, this rocket is going to explode or these friends are going to drift in space for the rest of their lives. It just kind of puts it in perspective for me. That's all I wanted to say. But tell me what they all have in common. What do they all have in common? They are brilliant scientific minds, certainly. They were all immigrants to America who were welcomed by our country and able to thrive here and contribute to all sorts of scientific advancements, discoveries, and creativity. What else? Oh, yes. They were all high-ranking members of the Nazi party <gasps> who, at the end of World War II, were brought to America as part of Operation Paperclip. Oh, no. Laura Camion, you love history. 
Have you ever heard of Operation Paperclip? No, I haven't. Buckle your seatbelt. Oh, no. Um, I don't um, know. The listeners can turn off this podcast right now. You, however, must stay on the ride. I will stay. And you know that I'm always saying this to a nauseating degree. We have to learn from history. Not teaching history is not the answer. We have to fucking learn from it. So I'm here for this story wherever it goes, Suze. I'm here. Awesome. Because I think you're absolutely right. And not to cut to the chase, but there's anything that we can make out of this. In addition to, I think, some kick-ass screenplays, etc. We'll get into it. I think learning from this, learning from this is one of the greatest things we can make out of it. So according to Wikipedia, Operation Paperclip was a secret United States intelligence program in which more than 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians were taken from former Nazi Germany to the U.S. for government employment after the end of World War II. Conducted by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, this operation was largely carried out by special agents of the U.S. Army's Counterintelligence Corps. Many of these scientists, engineers, and technicians who were welcomed into our country were former members, and some were former leaders of the Nazi Party. No. So, yes. And they were welcomed, I mean, I'm sure secretly, this was all, well, this was yes. on the down low because they were like, we need your minds and we need what you know. That's it, Laura Camion. We need your minds. And we're not going to let you continue to work in Germany where you got up to no good. That's right. That's right. Oh, God. Okay. And even more. Okay, here we go. So I want to recognize that what I'm about to share largely comes from the work of a journalist and a writer named Annie Jacobson and her book entitled Operation Paperclip, The Secret Intelligence Program That Brought Nazi Scientists to America. I also drew from a talk she gave at Politics and Prose, an interview with her on the PBS NewsHour, and a podcast called Right Where You Are Sitting Now. And just a trigger warning, this is a dark spark, y'all, and there's going to be some things that we talk about in terms of the atrocities of World War II and some of the things that the Nazis got up to. So I just want to put you all on alert. Do what you need to do to take care of yourself. I have cut out a lot of the things that are the most triggering. And if you want to take a deeper dive in this, I would highly recommend her book, but I'm going to give you sort of uh, an overview. And, and if you want to dig deeper, the book is an excellent, incredibly well-researched 400-page tome, so you can get into it. So informed by Annie Jacobson's research, I just want to tell you about a few of the approximately 1,600 scientists, engineers, and technicians that were welcomed to America after World War II. Before I do, I want to be clear that these scientists historically have been put forth as good Germans who were just scientists who were trying to put food on the table. But we now know through Annie Jacobson's work that in many cases, and I'm sure not all, but in many cases, that was a fiction. Can I just ask timing wise, like they were considered good Germans prior to World War II, or someone was trying to say inclusive of World War II, they were good Germans who were just doing what they were told to do. And they didn't really have a choice but to put their brains to work in the way Mm -hmm. they were told to put their brains to work. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, I'd like to introduce you to Colonel Siegfried Kanayemeyer, one of the Reich's top pilots, as I'm sure you know, Cams, because you are a student and a lover of history. Hermann Goering was the head of the German Air Force, also known as the Luftwaffe. And Kanayemeyer was Goering's right-hand man. Goering referred to Siegfried Kanayemeyer as my boy. That's how closely he felt to him. Kanayemeyer went from being one of the most important people in the Luftwaffe to being one of the most important people in the Department of Defense. When Kanayemeyer resigned in the 70s, he was given the U.S. Department of Defense's highest honor, the Distinguished Civilian Service Award. And he, I was fascinated to learn, ended up living and working at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base where I'm from in Dayton, Ohio. <gasps> So while he is tooling around Dayton, Ohio in the 70s, I am too. So I was just like, whoa, you think of this stuff as being sort of far from you? Turns out, not so far. The world gets smaller and smaller. Oh my God. Let me introduce you to Dr. Otto Ambrose. Annie Jacobson characterizes him as one of the most odious people to come out of Hitler's regime. Dr. Otto Ambrose was Hitler's favorite chemist. He co-invented the chemical weapon sarin gas. The A in sarin is the first initial of his last name, Ambrose. In the National Archives, Annie Jacobson found a record of a reward that Hitler bestowed upon Ambrose for 1 million Reichsmarks. And he received that award because he also invented synthetic rubber for the Reich when the Nazis were running out of rubber that they needed for their tank treads and for the tires on their planes. He invented synthetic rubber. Uh. Ambrose was also put in charge of a slave labor factory at Auschwitz where he enslaved people and they were forced to make this synthetic rubber for the Nazis. And the number of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people that died under the direction of in these work camps, uh, this was his direction, Otto Ambrose. Annie Jacobson includes this chilling photo in her book. It's Otto Ambrose at his trial at Nuremberg, and he's surrounded by his lawyers. They're in, it looks to be the courtroom at Nuremberg, and they're laughing they're laughing. They're smiling at the camera. He looks relaxed. At that trial at Nuremberg, which was a trial for war crimes, he was convicted of mass murder and slavery. And he's laughing. And she conjectures that it's probably because he may already know he's going to receive clemency. And indeed, he did. He ended up working for the U.S. Department of Energy his finances were fully restored so that one million Reichsmarks that he received as a reward from Hitler, he kept it all. I just feel like, I just feel angry. It makes my blood boil, but we're learning. Yeah. Sometimes learning. this is what learning feels like. Yeah. This is a dark spark, as I said. I, I know. It's, yeah. it's important. So Kurt Debus, who we just met, who I was just telling you about, he was the first director at the JFK Space Center. When he was living and working in Germany, he proudly wore his SS uniform to work, even though it wasn't required. So he's just like a good German scientist, right, going to work. He didn't have to wear his SS uniform, but he did. 
He turned his boss over to the Gestapo for making anti-Hitler remarks. And when the war was ending and they were, you know, divvying up the spoils of war, including these scientists in their brains, it was recommended that Debus not be brought to the U.S. But the Joint Chiefs said, we need him. He's coming. Who? I wonder who recommended. These scientists were sort of the spoils of war. And so there were these people that went over there, you know, kind of nestled in the allies to determine like who should be brought. And they recommended, they were like, this person, he is just such a Nazi. Like an evil genius. Yeah. He's a bad guy. And we recommend you not bring him over. And the Joint Chief said, we need him, and he came. To this day, the National Space Association in Washington, D.C. oversees the annual Dr. Kurt Debus Award. And when the journalist Annie Jacobson asked the president of that organization why they continue to give out an award named after a known Nazi, knowing his past, as we now do, the answer came back, it's a simple fact. Kurt Debus is an honored American. And she pushed back and followed up by asking the president of the National Space Association, what do you say when journalists asked you, how can you be doing this? And he said, no one had ever asked him that question before. Well, because this was also secretive. Correct. But now you can find it on Wikipedia. It's just that it's been so, to use Annie Jacobson's words, it's been so whitewashed. Yes. For a long time, it was confidential, but it's just been so smoothed over, first by the secret of the U.S. government, and then by just the sands of time. I just was thinking about like, gosh, what's it like to be a, you know, a U.S. scientist? We're fighting a war against Nazis. That war ends with a, you know, quote unquote, victory as if, as if there's like clear winners in wars, but let's say. And you're here and then you're told, hey, you're going to have some new co-workers joining you next week. Yeah. We're going to bring these guys in. I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Annie Jacobson, in response to this, the president of the National Space Association saying, this is an honored American. Annie Jacobson is asking, can't we undo his position as an honored American. Now that we know more, now that we can see more of the whole reality and the whole truth, do we still have to lionize this guy and even name awards after him that are given out in his name year after year after year? So remember Dr. Theodore Benzinger, the inventor of the ear thermometer? Before he retired in Bethesda, Maryland, before he was the director of the U.S. Air Force Research Center, before he came to the United States in 1947 and was naturalized as a U.S. citizen in 1955, before all of that, he worked directly under Hermann Goering and was an officer with the Nazi stormtroopers. In that New York Times obituary, published in 1999, when he died at the age of 94, he was lauded for his long career as a doctor in the U.S. Navy and the invention of the air thermometer. But what was completely left out was that he was part of this small group of doctors that worked with Himmler. And when Himmler would show films at the Reich Air Ministry, films depicting medical murder experiments, he would have Dr. Theodore Benzinger do the introductions. So... These scientists, the ones that I'm talking about, they knew 
exactly what was going on. Yeah. Sometimes they were not only a party to it, but they were overseeing it. Yeah. And again, Annie Jacobson has pointed out with her painstaking research, and it stands on the shoulders of other painstaking research that journalists have done, just the whitewashing that has happened is astonishing. So you may be asking yourself, and maybe listeners are asking themselves, how in God's name did all of this happen? So here's a little bit more insight to that. It's the fall of 1944. The Allies have landed at Normandy. Laura, you have talked about this on this very podcast. My grandfather jumped on D-Day at Normandy, where I have been to visit. Yeah, That's right. So they've landed at Normandy. And immersed inside, those army soldiers are a group of scientists led by a particle physicist named Samuel Goodsmith. Now, this was a precursor. I'm sorry, I've got to clarify. So the scientists, they have them jump out of planes or come out of those U-boats? I don't know. I don't know exactly how they got there. But I do know, it seems like they were embedded. The, The impression that I got is that they were embedded in there. Yeah. That they knew that the war was coming to an end. They knew that there was a lot of research that the Nazis had done around ABC weapons, A for atomic, B for biological, and C for chemical. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to learn everything they could. They wanted all that information and they wanted, if they could, the brains that developed that information. So this this sort of operation that Samuel Goodsmith led, that was the precursor to Operation Paperclip. It was called Operation Alsace. And they had one mission, And it was to learn about those ABC weapons. They quickly learned that the atomic weapons program of the Nazis was not as advanced as the U.S. had feared because, and this is just gross, it's a layer cake of grossness, Hitler deemed the science behind atomic weaponry as Jewish science, and he hadn't invested in its development as much. But biological and chemical weapons, the Nazis had developed. As we all know now, But they didn't know then necessarily. It came to light pretty quickly that the Nazis were experimenting on humans in the concentration camps to push medical science. And there had been a vast network of state-sponsored slavery, enslaved people from the concentration camps that were forced to do things like assemble the Nazis' weapons of war. Mm -hmm. Other secrets were uncovered. The Allies were coming across these caves that contained hidden troves of gold and documents and weapons, caves like Nordhausen, which was an underground tunnel facility where, remember Werner von Braun? Mm -hmm. Remember that rocket scientist? Mm -hmm. Werner von Braun and other scientists were overseeing the building of V2 rockets for the Reich in Nordhausen. And the way Annie Jacobson describes it, it's like she has pictures of it in her book and there's sort of um, like train tracks that run into it and they would ship in all the parts and the materials necessary and they would ship out the assembled rockets and sometimes, frankly, the bodies of the dead enslaved workers who had been worked to death. It is so dark. It's dark. It's so dark. The spark is so dark. The same Werner von Braun, who would be welcomed to the United States and celebrated for his leadership at NASA, 
that Werner von Braun, he would go into Buchenwald concentration camp and he would hand select the laborers to build those weapons. Thousands of those people died. And again, why, how, how did this happen? Because at the time, there was the very real threat that the Soviet Union was going to gain the advantage in the area of thermonuclear war. So very quickly, the Cold War heated up. And as a result, the majority of Nazi war criminals who were scientists were released into U.S. custody, essentially. And the U.S.'s position was, we must get these Nazi scientists or the Soviets will. Mm -hmm. And whoever has them will have the advantage in the areas of ABC warfare and the space race. I mean, it's information is power at its at its finest. But also, like, I'm so curious, I hope you're going to tell us, like, how were they allowed to live here? Were they just like, you're completely free citizens? Or were there some strings attached? Well, Annie Jacobson stresses there were approximately 1,600 of these sciences, engineers, and technicians that came over. She stresses that's who was documented. She thinks it might have been three times that. Because so much of this was confidential and the files around it were either lost on purpose or lost on accident. Accidentally on purpose. And you've got to imagine that some of them were also like, how can I save my buddies and my friends? And so, you know, it's one thing to pull me out, but you know, who's got the information you need on A, B, and C, it's this other person. And so you could see the potential for if people see an exit strategy, how can they help others? It's interesting you say that because something I have heard the journalist Annie Jacobson point out is that, for instance, we're talking about these very, very high level, powerful minds, these scientists that were brought over. And then there were people that were brought over in this Operation Paperclip program. They were like, in food service. And they were in these like weird, like requisitioning experts. And what she conjectures is when these scientists were still in Germany, if there were things like cooks in the kitchen at facilities where they were being held, the cooks might say, you better find a way to get me over there, or I might be the one that completely spills the beans about your war crimes that I'm aware of because I've been living around you people for so long. So that I could just see how people wheeled and dealed and and some of them might have been the brightest minds in Germany, but some of them might not have been. They were just looking for a way to save themselves after the war. And came up with some creative solutions. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there were people whose jobs it was to literally just be a food taster for the high level Nazis to taste all of their food before they taste it because the threat of like being poisoned by one of those cooks you speak of, you know, was pretty high. So that's a very real thing they could have threatened, Suze. Wow. Another thing that was interesting is that for those folks in the U.S. government and for instance, the U.S. Army that were aware of Operation Paperclip, If you took an oppositional stance to the operation, you could at that time be perceived as pro-communist, which could be a career ender and a liberty ender for you as a U.S. citizen. So there's that sort of complexity as well. And there was a real tug of war that was happening. So you have a faction looking for scientists that might be recruited into Operation Paperclip because 
U.S. leadership wants the advancement that they will bring. Then you have another faction who is looking for scientists who should be tried at the Nuremberg trials for war crimes. So there's, it's so interesting. You, there's so many like tug of wars, even within this Operation Paperclip. Yes, that you've got these literally high level U.S. departments being like, I want to try them and execute them or put them in jail for the rest of their life. Yeah. Or no, you can't do that because we need what they know. Or you can do that after we get what we think they know. Yeah. It seemed like that happened really rarely, that somebody was actually pulled back and tried for those war crimes. It seemed like the exception, not the rule. So very few people outside of the inner circle of Project Paperclip knew that the good German scientists that had been integrated into our government and given U.S. citizenship and high-ranking jobs were actually Nazis. But to your question earlier, some U.S. Army members who were aware were torn because they didn't want to be working with these Nazis, but they also felt a threat from the Soviets who were vying for these scientists after the war. So U.S. military folks who had been opposed felt working with the Nazis seemed like it might be the lesser of two evils. And then on the other hand, there were other U.S. Army officials who really seemed to like these Nazis, despite knowing the atrocities that they had committed. There is a photo of a General Charles Laux. It's at a cocktail party, enjoying the company of Hitler's chemists who were now working with the general in the United States at Edgewood Arsenal. And in General Laux's diaries, it is confirmed that Nazis, that the U.S. government denied ever having been a part of Operation Paperclip, were in fact living and working in the United States with new identities and fat salaries. So the U.S. military was completely complicit. They hid, they classified information, they whitewashed the background of these folks. And I just want to highlight the work of a CNN reporter named Linda Hunt, who worked really tirelessly in the 1980s to force the U.S. Army to declassify these files. Had it not been for her work, all of this might still be a secret to time. It's so weird because I feel conflicted about this in particular, like in regard to the Army, because of the Army's mission and one objective and goal of keeping us safe. So of all the departments who I could see being like, well, of the options we have, like this technology, the things that live in these people's brains in the hands of our enemy is going to be worse for us than having them here. It's one of those things where you realize like things are always more complex because we could say no, under no circumstances, they should have been, they should have gone to Russia. Number one, they might have lived even grander, happier lives in Russia than they did here as celebrated humans and um, scientists. And the biological weapons that they created might have killed millions of Americans. We'll never know what their talents and skills might have produced in the hands of other evil leaders. You see what I'm saying? Like the army itself, it's not in them to say, go ahead and give these weapons to the other country because it just doesn't feel right for them to be here. Yeah, it raises so many questions. 
just a sidebar, Laura, I know you as being one of the most empathic, highly sensitive people that I know. And I also know you as being just like a dyed in the wool lover of history. And I just have to ask you like how you square those things sometimes, because you know, living with this for this past week and really marinating in this research, it is so painful. It is so upsetting. But like you were saying, absolutely necessary. We have to learn from history and from a creative standpoint, incredibly like the raw material we'll get to it in a second, but the raw material here is so rich and largely untapped because a lot of this stuff was classified for so long. But I just wonder how you do it, like how you square your love of history, but also your highly sensitive empathic nature because, ooh, holy moly. I mean, I just think that not learning history because it's painful is like, to me, the equivalent of putting our heads in the sand. I think if you know history... It's humanity. To me, I just can't separate the study of the arts from the study of history because human emotion, these big, big questions that we grapple with, they're all right there in historical moments. It's like how we dramatize them so that we can learn from them. But it's painful. Mm -hmm. It's fucking painful and it feels unfair and it feels sometimes Mm. like it makes my blood boil and... Mm -hmm. I mean, and then I feel guilty too. I'll say to me, I'm like, it's very easy for me to say those men shouldn't have lived at all. That would have solved it. Not, are they going to the U S or are they going to Russia? You know what I mean? Um, But they took so many lives. Why, why didn't we take theirs? But I think sort of like, Laura, you don't know anything about that. You don't even know what you're talking about right now. Well, I have to say where I sort of get really feeling really run down and sort of despondent is it really is the ultimate evidence that life is not fair. I think when I was little, maybe I thought foundationally life was fair. And as I age, I'm like, oh, no. It's totally not. And you can be worked to death in a work camp. And the very person that oversaw that can go on to live a long, prosperous, happy life with children and grandchildren and a high paying position. And he passed away in peace in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And I'm like, no, that fuck it. It's so it's it's it feels so wrong. Yeah. Those are the times that I feel powerless and, and cutting to moments now where you see, you know, people at high levels committing crimes and, or even passing policy that they know is going to harm certain groups of people. And it enrages me so much. And then you watch them go on, you're like, not a thing happens and they're living their like wealthy lives and they feel untouchable. But I do think again, like, You've got to look to history for how people have coped with that. What happens when those powers get too powerful? It typically doesn't end well. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of these people may be alive when that happens and maybe they won't, but it's not headed in a great direction according to history and what happens when governments move in this direction. Mm. Some of the questions that Annie Jacobson poses in her work are, you know, in the eyes of the military, there will always be another war. We're always sort of preparing for another war. And the question she asks is, but do you really have to make these moral compromises where really, really bad guys 
become a part of the winning team. And she also asks, was it worth it? Were the contribution these people made worth the moral compromise? Should one allow a past crime to be canceled out by some benefit to national security or civilian science? She feels that ultimately Einstein had it right. He left Germany as soon as the Nazis were ascending to power. He said he left because in Germany, science and justice were now in the hands of a raw and rabid mob of Nazi militia. And he said any scientist who stayed and was working for the Third Reich knew what they stood for. It was public information. And those people who did that work were not fit to be American. How did I never know that about Einstein? Well, Laura, I have to say, I thought for sure when I decided to tackle this spark, I was like, Laura Camion, I'm going to tee this up and she's going to be like, I know where we're headed. Operation Paperclip. Oh, the old paperclip. <laughs> but you no. know what? You know, as no. I have like done more research, even with the good work of people like Linda Hunt and Annie Jacobson, I don't think that this story is very well known. And as a result, we're going to come up on some very interesting what do we make of it because I think there's a lot to be made of it that hasn't been made. So let's talk about it. If you're journalists like Linda Hunt and Annie Jacobson, maybe one of the what do we make of it is you work tirelessly to bring the truth to light. And if you're not moved to be a journalist, maybe support journalists doing this type of intrepid, deep dive, intensive work to bring truths to light. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. One thing that has been made of this is there's a short film. It's called Camp Confidential. It's on Netflix. According to an article on Decider.com, the film tells the story of Operation Paperclip, but from a different perspective. Oh. So Laura, this may answer some of the questions you have about what about these people that were essentially tasked to work with you know, Nazi scientists? So this is the story of the Jewish American immigrants who worked as U.S. Army translators and hosts for these Nazi scientists who were illegally brought to America. Ooh. And it's directed by Moore, Lucy, and Daniel Savan. And it blends animation with live action documentary footage to tell the story. It's about 35 minutes long. Again, it's called Camp Confidential. America's Secret Nazis, and it's available now on Netflix. It's actually beautifully made. Wow. But as far as I can tell, Laura, no one has made a definitive film, either a full-length documentary or even a um, scripted narrative about Operation Paperclip. When were these files like declassified? Some, I believe, were declassified in the 80s. And as I said, some of them were probably declassified more recently and some are just completely lost to history. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that might be one of the reasons why this is just like this weird, well-kept open secret now. But now it lives on, if you look at Wikipedia, it's now more out in the open. If anybody makes a film about Operation Paperclip, I am telling you, there has to be a screenwriter writing it right now. There are so many different stories within this. There are so many different characters and protagonists that you could follow on this. If you are writing this or if you do write this, and if the journalist Annie Jacobson is a character, here's a hot spark for you. Cherry Jones 
should play <laughs> Annie Jacobson. Amazing. Cherry Jones and Annie Jacobson have very similar vocal qualities and even appearances. Cherry Jones is a little bit older than Annie Jacobson, but oh my gosh, like there's your casting. There's your casting. Cherry Jones, if you're listening, write this for yourself and play this role. I'll watch that. On a personal level, here's what I make of this. Standing up for what's right is hard. And there's not many heroes in this story, but there are a few people who were tasked with being part of Operation Paperclip, but they they could not condone this. And Operation Paperclip actually got its name because there were people who were aware of this operation and they opposed it and they would not approve. Like Kurt Debus is a great example. It was recommended that he not be brought over. So this practice began where they would put a paperclip on those files of the Nazis that were tough to approve. And these paperclip files would be submitted to someone who was willing to look the other way and was willing to rubber stamp and approve them coming through. So one, what do I make of this is it's so hard, but could I be the person that stands up and is like, no, fuck you. I will not be a party to this. But when you say to do what is right, my question is what is right? Put them in jail for life, simply not bring them to the U S and know that they're knowledge is going to be used against the U.S. And that's essentially like setting them free, knowing what they're doing and setting them free. So is it doing what's right, if we know anything about them, would have been to get them in the Nuremberg trials, have them tried for war crimes, end of story. But okay, so we weren't around then. We don't work in the government. This is a little bit of conjecture, but here we are now. And it's sort of like, what is right now? If you're the president of that space association that honors, gives out the Kurt Debus Award every year, maybe what is right is retiring that. Change the name of the fucking award. We know this to be true about him. We know this. We know this now. And yeah, you can honor scientists in so many other ways without giving him a legacy that is a positive one. Here's another example of standing up for what is right now. There were descendants of some of these scientists that Annie Jacobson approached. And the the gentleman, this was actually interesting, the gentleman, uh, Kanea Meyer, who ended up stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and working there. He's obviously no longer alive, but his grandson is. I think his name is Dirk Kanayemeyer is the grandson's name. And Annie Jacobson went to him and asked to, to interview him and to talk about, if he would talk about his grandfather's legacy, all of it. And Dirk Kanayemeyer, very courageously, and that's a word that Annie Jacobson uses, courageously agreed to be interviewed, even though members of that family said, do not talk about what grandpa did. Dirk said, I would rather know the truth and be honest about the truth than continue hiding the truth. So let's talk about it. And he provided, you know, documentation from his grandfather's papers and things like that. That's another way of standing up for what is right. 
There was that gentleman who created sarin gas and was one of the most odious figures from this whole Operation Paperclip. Annie Jacobson approached, it was either his son or his grandson who lives on the West Coast and said, I understand that your, I, I forget if it was the father or the grandfather received this 1 million Reichsmarks and was able to keep it even after being tried and found guilty at the Nuremberg trials, then receiving clemency, was allowed to keep his fortune. And with that fortune, one of the things that he did, I believe, was buy a villa or a chalet in Switzerland. Uh. And when Annie Jacobson asked the heir of this person to talk about this, they said, that's a private matter, which I mean... I don't know that person, but it leads me to believe that they have, they are the heir to part of this fortune. And my question is, do the heirs of those folks who died in those concentration camps, do they view it as a private matter? That's something that Annie Jacobson was talking about. Yeah. This is where I'm sort of like, there are all different ways of standing up for what's right. As we know, people are activists in all different ways. I guess I'll just conclude where we started, which is our definition of creativity is applied imagination that fights for the powers of good. And we add that for the powers of good to the pure definition of creativity because we want to be aligned with the powers of good. We're not interested in energizing creativity that has negativity and destruction and trauma woven into it. And after having explored what these people did, who they imprisoned, who they tortured and enslaved and killed in order to advance their creative vision, I stand by our definition now more than ever, applied imagination that fights, fights, fights for the powers of good. And that is my spark. Oh, Suze, you have left me troubled deeply just deeply troubled i mean it's like shining a light in those dark corners that we really don't want to look That's, in yes and sometimes yeah. as americans you know we want to like gloss over some of the more complicated and less than flattering things that we have done so that we can sort of beat our chest and talk about how powerful we are you know in our american exceptionalism yeah I mean, I see why people are afraid to have stories like this come out because, you know, again, information is power. And if people could start by having a more holistic view of what our country has done and, and ways in which we've participated. So rather than just talking about how we showed up X number of years into the war, helped out, claimed victory, Instead of that being like essentially the full story of World War II in terms of America's participation, like let's look at it all and see what amends we need to make. And I don't know that our army would ever say like, yeah, we would do that differently now. I genuinely don't know if they would have this same conversation. But I think it's important to push them to have the conversations. This Annie Jacobson, who's asking them the questions, is so essential of like, but sir, what about this one small step you could take? It is truly complicated. Sometimes it feels so far away from our grasp or our influence, certainly. But I will tell you, Laura, you know, sometimes learning history is not the easiest for me. Pile some science on there and I'm even more like, Ugh. but 
maybe one of the reasons why it's so challenging is because it is complicated. It doesn't feel like it's clean or finite. It dovetails into other things and other stories. But one thing I can say for sure is this. It is chock-a-block with sparks. Like there is so much potential creativity. And again, I say to you, I do not know that there has been a great screenplay. I just don't know that it exists yet. And so somebody, if you're listening, get on it. If this is your bailiwick, if this is what lights you up, get on it. I'm fascinated. I'm appalled. I feel a little nauseous and it just feels like an important conversation to have an investigation to like dig into. And I agree some writer or artist is going to tell the story in such a way that helps us all understand it and find some peace or activate ourselves into, you know, taking action. Well, if you feel nauseous, then I guess my work here is done. <laughs> Thank you, Suze. <laughs> You're welcome. I, but I, I just want to, just all kidding aside, as you said it, just as I thought it, which is if this moves you to activism in any sort of way, like taking positive steps, <laughs> whatever form that takes for you, I don't mean radicalization. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about taking a stand for what is right. Maybe use this, whatever feelings this might bring up in you, use that, use that to fight hard for the powers of good. Suze, I'm sorry. I know we're trying to wrap up, but I can't, my mind just keeps running. Um, I think about like a character. These are the characters that movies are never written about because it is like this quiet hero. But I imagine like being a scientist again and being told like, here's, here's this person who's going to join the team. And literally one person's defiance might simply have been like, I'm going to leave this job. I, I actually cannot work with a Nazi. I'd like a transfer to another job, another location, or they gave up their occupation altogether. I mean, no one's going to write a story about that person. It's not a quote unquote big enough, but it is one individual's act of defiance, their stance of like, no, this doesn't sit with me. I want to know if there are any people in, like that in this story. Well, I recommend that you read Operation Paperclip by Annie Jacobson. Guess what you're getting for Christmas? <gasps> Shangling-a-ling. God, Susan, what a spark. Well, it's, I, it's definitely like... It is a dark spark, but again, for the third time, if you are so moved, write this. Yes. Put this into your work, opera, screenplay, like you name it. It is untapped it is largely untapped let's get this story out let's, let's get, get this story out aware that's another beautiful piece of activism getting the story out yeah. get this story out get it out all right friends that's it Woo! Woo, shake it off. This episode of The Spark File was made on the lands of the Lenape people. And as always, we hope that it put another bunch of sparks in your file. Listen, if there's a spark you'd like us to explore, or if you'd like to learn more about how to coach with us to bring your creative ideas to life, you want to write that screenplay about Operation Paperclip, email us at thesparkfile at gmail.com or submit it through our website, thesparkfile.com. We will even happily take your feedback, but you know the price of admission. First things first, you have to share a creative risk that you have taken recently. You can follow us on social at the 
Mark file and be sure to subscribe, rate, and five-star review this podcast. It really helps other listeners to find us. Also, if you like this podcast, we hope that you will share it with people that you love. And if you didn't like it, you are clearly on the wrong side of history, friends. This podcast is great. If something lights you up, and gets your creative sparks flying, we are writing you a forever permission slip to make that thing. Please make that thing that's been knocking at your door. It is your turn to take that spark and fan it into a flame. You know, you gotta take it and make it. Make it for the powers of good. When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my spark fire. Could be something that I want to make or how I want to be. I pump it in my spark files. I jump into my spark files. Let's open up the spark files. Hi, friends. It's Susan Blackwell from The Spark File, your one-stop shop for creativity where our doors are open. And if you smell something delicious, that's because Laura Camion and I have been cooking up something special, something designed to make a big difference in people's creative lives. Enter The Brave Creative, a free five-day guided adventure to rediscover the vitality energy and possibility in your creative process whether you're a writer a performer a baker a candlestick maker navigating the creative process can be a bear but never fear there's power in numbers at the spark file so let's link arms and make the trip together it's may 13th through 17th 7 p.m eastern less than one hour per day and if you can't join live Don't worry about it. You can watch the replay. Join us by going to thesparkfile.com to register. And hey, if you're not familiar with The Spark File, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, we work with hundreds of creatives of all different kinds who are ready to take their next big step. We help folks fear less and create more in a community that is so fun and vibrant. And if you have joined us before, know that we are going deep with the Brave Creative. So buckle up, Buttercup. It is going to be an awesome adventure. Go to thesparkfile.com to register, but do it soon because it all starts May 13th. Thesparkfile.com. Register now. Thank you.